I know, as an elder statesman of the millennial generation, that people my age and younger are often hard on the generations that went before us, known collectively as the olds. We call Gen Xers boomers, call boomers fascists, and call the greatest generation, well, we call them the greatest generation. But there's kind of an implied question mark after greatest? It's easy and rather obvious to say that some of the derision with which we speak of our elders is unfair and unwarranted. But it should be just as obvious that the stereotypes we deal with at the hands of our elders are equally unfair. Case in point, the idea that millennials are punk kids with no respect for their elders. I'm going to be goddamn 40 years old on my next birthday, and I love the shit out of my elders. I see a man with one of those World War II veterans camps, and I just hope he'll stop and talk to me about how nickels used to have bees on them. And you'd say, give me five bees for a quarter to catch the ferry to Morganville, which was what they called Shelbyville in those days. I'm not joking, I love that shit, and that isn't new for me either. I used to sit around the family dinner table on holidays just to listen to my grandmother and my great uncles tell stories about growing up in the depression. Even as a rebellious college student, I once skipped class because I helped an old man cross the street, and then stuck around to listen to him tell me about how he was an alumnus from the class of 1948, and about how much the campus had changed since he graduated. I was on my way to class, and we were right outside the building, but I just couldn't tear myself away. Maybe I'm a weird millennial, humble brag, but if you're anything like me, then today's film is one you won't want to miss. It's entirely a bunch of really old olds talking about their experiences during World War I. These are guys from the generation that couldn't stand watching Grandpa Simpson and his hipster friends strutting around with onions on their belts. I watched this movie three times in a 36-hour period before we recorded today's episode, and the third time was at least in part just to listen to that old man sing about plum and apple jam again. Sadly, we don't have many of our World War II vets left to talk our ears off in grocery stores anymore, and the World War I generation has vanished entirely. We're lucky to have this movie as a document of their lives, stories, and voices. And despite my controversial views on Peter Jackson, for which Katie has chastised me sternly multiple times in our short acquaintance, I count myself lucky to have seen it. So do your bit and join us as we review Peter Jackson's 2018 technological marvel, They Shall Not Grow Old. Welcome everyone to the third episode of Danger Close War Film Podcast. Today we are talking about the Peter Jackson documentary from 2018, They Shall Not Grow Old. My name is Dan and I am here today with my co-hosts. Katie. And I am Liam. This was Katie's pick, so I'll let her go right into why she chose this film and uh, give us her mission briefing. Welcome listeners. I'm so glad you're joining us again. So... I chose They Shall Not Grow Old because I, um, several years ago, wrote an unpublished novel about World War One, and when I was actively doing film criticism, this came up and I 
begged and pleaded with my uh, press rep to get me a pass for it and was able to see it in the big screen and it was in 3D, which honestly, I don't really care for 3D, but surprisingly, this works perfectly with it. Um, and the film in question, They Shall Not Grow Old, is a documentary by Peter Jackson in cooperation with the British National Archives. It more focuses on the average soldier on the Western Front during World War One, as opposed to giving us like a history lesson or a bigger picture of the politics or strategies of the war. It far more gives a glimpse into the daily life of British soldiers, particularly, um, uh, like I said, it takes place on the Western Front. There's no discussion of anything outside of that. And it goes down into the nitty gritty of them getting their gear in the beginning to what happened to them after the war. And it just gives you this really great perspective on what these men went through. It uses almost exclusively actual war footage that was shot there on the front. And the audio is mostly veterans recordings that were taken in like 50s and 60s and like the 50th anniversary time of the war of World War One. And the thing that's so great about it is that Jackson seamlessly blends these two elements, this audio track of these older men recalling their experiences and the footage of these young men for the vast majority, you know, under 25, living through a world changing event. It took about three years to make this documentary. It opened in about 1100 theaters. It grossed about $20 million at the box office which is pretty great for this kind of movie, honestly. And the budget wasn't released because this was very much a production of uh, the Imperial War Museum and the National Heritage Group in England. And it was all meant to be a commemoration of World War One. And they chose Peter Jackson because Jackson is very well known for being a bit of a history buff when it comes to World War One, as we'll talk about. It didn't end up being eligible for any Oscars, but it did get nominated for a BAFTA, which for those who don't know, BAFTAs are like the British version of the Oscars and are pretty big. So it wasn't critically controversial. This was a very well accepted film. Most people loved it, thought it was so fantastic and emotional. But the small amounts of criticism it did receive were entirely based in like from an archivist's perspective, because Jackson did a lot of technological changing to this footage and colorized it, made it in 3D for film releases anyway. And some people were very critical of that because they felt that it detracted from the experiences of the men and made it feel like you less that you could empathize and see what was going on with them and made you more focus on like the pageantry almost of it, of seeing this in color for the first time. And for me, that was not true. I felt like I was able to much better empathize with these men because of all the changes they made. But what do you guys think about that? How did it affect you when you were watching it? I have compelling thoughts on this, but my struggle will be to remain concise because this is a point I've talked about outside of this film, just colorization in general and the use of black and white as an artistic choice. I tend to differ with a lot of people on how I feel about it. I like it sometimes. Most of the time, I'd rather see color. But Tell us all about that. I am really interested to hear it. So generally speaking, just for you guys, and maybe I'll keep this in, um, generally speaking, while I understand the artistic perspective of choosing to film something in black and white with color available, so post-19, mid-1940s or whatever that was a common technology, 
Um, I respect those choices. I understand why directors do it. Uh, my girlfriend's big into photography, so she was able to explain a lot about the contrast and like kind of the different things about lighting and color that you need to think about when you're doing black and white as opposed to shooting in color. However, for me, it pulls me out of the film a little bit and turns it more into a painting or something slightly more abstract because real life is not in black and white, at least not for humans or humans that have color vision. And so that's totally fine if it's something artistic, but if it's something where I'm trying to really feel the reality of the situation, the black and whiteness kind of pulls me out a little bit. That was actually a reason why Jackson did this. He colorized it because he felt that that would do exactly what you're saying. If it, he said, if these men could have chosen color film, they absolutely would have. So that was his justification. Exactly. It's a documentary and the whole point is to make it more real and make you feel what these people were experiencing. So black and white is only associated with older film because that was a limitation of the technology at a time. Most of the time that wasn't an artistic choice. Again, later on you see directors choosing to film in black and white and that's a whole separate discussion. And it's for me, it's case to case whether that makes the film more or less compelling and whether it pulls me out or not. So I already lean towards... Um, choosing color when possible. I don't agree with recolorizing It's a Wonderful Life. It ruins the movie. And like Jackson explains in the making of this, which if we're not, we're going to say this at least three times this episode, make sure you have access to or can watch the 30 minute making of documentary of this because Peter Jackson explains a lot behind the process and it adds immensely to the film, I think. But that being said, um, I already felt this way about color. Um, in this particular case, I am 100% backing Peter Jackson's concept and what Katie just said, that to me, it really allows me to see these people from 100 years ago as real people and not just, and of course, that's in combination with the timing correction and all that other stuff that we'll talk about. But it's not about changing records or history. It's about seeing how much they can pull a modern audience to really empathize and connect with these people. So I think in this particular case, it was a great choice. Um, Jackson also explains how colorization, kind of like stop motion animation, uh, both suffer from not having enough budget and enough time and enough people working on it. Meaning the more money and time you have to work on it, the better it's going to look. And so you notice that. I would not call this out as like, the best example of colorization that's ever been made because it's not a process that I personally appreciate that much anyways. I just rather that that film could have been shot in color in the first place, but I have seen some still photos where obviously someone has gone through and meticulously colored it by pixel and it looks amazing. And I'm like, that's great. You just can't afford to do that in most films. So at no point does any of the weird coloration or things being slightly off or whatever you do notice during the film throw me out because I really appreciate the effort of what he was trying to do. So for me, I have zero problems. In fact, I'm really glad that he made that choice and I'm glad that he transitions to it mid film and didn't start that way. That's how I feel concisely or not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I have a, 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 a sort of a, a two-pronged response to that. Um, one is for myself, and one is I actually uh, watched this with my 10-year-old son. Um, he and I and my father went to uh, go see 1917 when it came out in theaters. That was his first R-rated movie, and he was thrilled to have gone to see an R-rated movie. Um 
and he loved it. It's like his favorite film of all time already. Uh, but I figured this is World War One. He'll probably like it. Uh, they talk at length about pooping on the front lines, and and every ten year old loves to hear about that. Oh God, it was like it like I'm like, why is this rated R? I get it. You're showing a lot of real dead bodies, but like this, like the pooping on the front lines bit is like 100 percent uh, made for kids like my son. Was he inspired uh, when the soldiers like we just never had to wash our hands? Your kids are like, yes. No, oh, he's ever. a big hand washer though. <laughs> really? I think, okay. That's I think good. all of the kids that are going through the pandemic right now that's are true. all going to grow up to be obsessive massive, hand washers. Yeah, just like massive hand washers. I can say that, like I've I've grown up watching black and white movies. Uh, if if I could wave a magic wand and make the world look like Casablanca, I would do it. If if not that, then I would like everything to be in Technicolor. I want just the world to look like Meet Me in St. Louis. So for myself, I don't trust Peter Jackson to like, I don't trust him to take out my garbage, let alone to like make a movie. Um, I really... <laughs> That's okay. You can laugh out loud, Katie. It's okay. I, we, <laughs> Don't be hating we, on my Lord of the Rings, man. Oh, you can hate on the Hobbit all you want, but never my Lord of the Rings. Oh, yes, I can. Very, very <laughs> easily. Uh, but the... So, like, I, I, I have no love for Peter Jackson. And while I was watching it, I was more distracted, I think, more so than any technology that he was employing as much as I was, as I was questioning, uh, like what he was trying to accomplish with it or what he, what his motivations were in making this movie. Um, and, and why he decided to make it this way. Uh, because speaking for myself, I don't need the, uh, I don't need the technology. I don't need the colorization. I don't need the frame rate increase or turning it into high definition uh, to um, to be able to empathize with the world that they're portraying. Um, just because that's like black and white and grainy is how I think. So like that's uh, like I that's that's how I imagine a lot of things. Uh, so it, it felt unnecessary to me. However, to my 10 year old son, who was like, when is that? Cause I told him, I was like, it's pretty cool. Like they start out with showing like all this old, like silent footage. That's all grainy and fucked up looking. And then like they, as the movie goes, they like change it to like high definition and they did all this like cool stuff with it and they turned it to color. And then they, they had people like voice over like what the people were saying in the movie and they added sound effects. He's like, so it's not silent anymore. I said, yeah. And he's like, and it's in color. I was like, yeah. And he was like, okay, I'll watch it. And then we were watching it and he was like, when's this going to be in color? So when, uh, when it started to get into color, miles and miles further into the movie than when it was in black and white. Um, I've made him sit through some black and white movies because I'm a, I'm a jerk, but, uh, 
he definitely does prefer color. And I think he's able to relate to it better seeing these guys moving like people normally do in movies and talking like they do in movies and in color. Um, but for the most part, it felt unnecessary for me and more of something to uh, prop up the movie as like a, almost like a gimmick, but not really like it. I I wonder if he didn't do that, would he have still tried to make this movie? To memorialize these soldiers a hundred years later is to try to bring some of their humanity back into the world again, stop them being a, a black and white cliche. Because they, they didn't see that war in black and white. They, they did not experience this war in black and white. They experienced the war in, in full living color. So why shouldn't we now with the technology we have turn it from a black and white war back into a color war again? Well, here, I can actually tell you all about how this movie came to be. Thank you. Please do. Be because one of the things, so like I said, I saw this movie in theaters and the making of bit that is on the Blu-ray and that you can find pieces of on YouTube um, is a really condensed version of that video. It is, he, they cut the 3D part out, obviously, because it's not applicable here, but they also kind of cut out his little beginning talking about how um, the Imperial War Museum approached him and because they had a, God, what was it called? Like the 14 to 18 project where the UK was finding contemporary artists to interpret World War I media and create things to bring awareness to the 100 year anniversary of the war. And so they knew that Jackson was a big war aficionado. Like it, it is made clear the man has like his own World War I artillery pieces. So those giant cannons you see, Jackson has at least a couple of those. <laughs> and so they approached him and he was very interested in it. This would be after he had finished making The Hobbit. And he took no money for this. This was something that he worked with them to develop an idea and they gave him just this blank slate of hundreds of hours of footage and he and his team watched it. And this is the idea that they came up with to try to give folks a perspective. His uh, grandfather was in World War One, So that really informed a lot of this. Yeah, and died later of his wound, like much later in life. He survived for a while, but he had serious shrapnel wounds. I think it wounds. was... 50, I think they said he, was he made 50, it to. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. I wanted to go back and add a quote to your statement. I was, I knew I was going to quote this, but I was trying to figure out where, because several people like in emails mentioned this and stuff. Cause it's so great when Peter Jackson's talking about, so this is, again, we have to explain everything to Liam because he didn't watch this part, but I didn't watch this part. No, <laughs> this is, I am, I'm coming to this to one with fresh eyes. It's That's fine. What I'm, yeah. That was what I wanted to do. It's good. I, I still want you to watch it after this, though, because it'll yeah. it'll give you a lot more respect for Jackson's intent and what he was trying to do. When Jackson's describing his collection, because, of course, the context here is that they didn't want to look up random sound effects of guns and explosions. They wanted as close to the sounds of the time as they could get. And so Peter Jackson's like, eh, I've got a few bits of First World War artillery, as you do. And just keeps talking and like, it's such a great joke because it was so subtle and he didn't bother to stop on it at all. But like, he's admitting how much of a nerd and obviously he has the money to be able to do that. Um, but yeah, so we'll talk, we'll get into this later, but they went into recording a lot of actual 
you know, loading, rechambering, shell being ejected, firing, as well as the New Zealand military helped them on kind of more modern but same caliber sized rounds that they were live firing um, to get the sounds of the rounds buzzing overhead or whistling overhead and the sounds of the rounds actually hitting so that they could splice that into the film. The Foley work in this is fantastic. And I think that really speaks to the whole, the whole thing of, I can totally understand having, having seen Peter Jackson's career. Um, I can totally understand your like, eh, why'd you do this? What inspired it? But I think. Oh, the, the, thing the Foley that, work was uh, fucking chef fingers. Like, wow, perfect. Oh, it's, and it's all recreated. It's all recreated. None of that is coming mm-hmm. from like a, a Foley studio or pre-recorded. Like from the boots m- marching in the mud to the bags jangling, like all of that was recreated, and all of the um, all the like little bits of audio in the background where they're talking are like they hired people to read lips to recreate this. Like he the the special features, but it's just so valuable to see because it gives you this insane perspective, both on how dedicated Jackson was to making this and how many things the Imperial War Museum has. My, my favorite bit of sound uh, was the one scene where the cannon fires and all the shingles slide off the roof and they like keep, they keep Mm -hmm. sliding Man, like if if ASMR is your thing, like you should just watch this movie because like the sounds are just so detailed and so multi-layered that like just listening to all these slate shingles fall off the roof because of the boom of the cannon was so cool. Yeah, you can tell there are layers of sounds here that you can't even identify all the layers, but you just know they're there and you're going to hear different things every time. And I think that's the thing that really sets this film apart is that is the absolute dedication that Jackson had to making it like and to making it feel as authentic as possible. Like that's why he chose to use um, only those veteran interviews because he wanted the voices of the actual men who'd experienced this conflict to tell their stories. And oh my, do we get so many stories like there are more than one in here that's like well this could make up like a whole movie (laughs) just this guy's experience of this one moment that he's describing would be so moving and i think them choosing jackson to make this was just a very clever move because this was something that was very much produced for a british audience in recognition of British contributions to World War One, And it came out in like October, I think it premiered at BFI, the London festival. Um, but then on the 100th anniversary of Armistice Day, they play it on the BBC. So it's not, this is something that a lot of people saw where their numbers just aren't counted. It's not just about box office, but then it came to America and still, you know, internationally $20 million is quite a bit for something so small. and it's impressive. And I think Jackson is the reason for that because of his dedication and time to making this feel as authentic and paying tribute to these folks. Cause that's definitely what it feels like when you know all the background stuff is that this is a movie that is paying tribute to these soldiers who went through some horrific stuff. It is. And I also think that uh, the, I, I think it was clever of them to get Jackson because his he's got that name recognition. And I think that 
there was an when you see Peter Jackson's name on something, you're expecting a lot of spectacle. So you, you, you really can't like, he's not going to make room with a view, you know, he's going to like, even if he does a period piece, it's going to be a 3d period piece with going to be King Kong. Yeah. It's going to be with a giant ape on the top of the buildings, but the, uh, but I think people went to see this, at least in America, uh, probably went to see this. Just as many people went to see it because it had Peter Jackson attached to it as went to see it because they're World War One buffs. Yeah, that's that's probably true. Um, I think his attention to detail is like the main thing that this benefits from. You really need a leader, in this case, a director, producer, who is going to really push for every scent in the production or everything, whatever, like feel how you will about Lord of the Rings, but you can't deny that when you look at the statistics of like how many pieces of chainmail did they make by hand? And it's like in the 12,000s or whatever, it's just mind blowing that they were able to put a budget to that type of attention to detail where it's like, well, you could just do all of this CGI. But again, I respect someone who really takes the time. And so in this case, they weren't reproducing any, or they weren't producing any footage but the work we just talked about that they went through with the Foley and everything. And again, we'll, we'll keep a light on that end so that people can enjoy this 29 minute behind the scenes for themselves because you can get all these details there. Um, but certainly you get the sense that out of respect for the people who lived this experience, he wanted to make it seem as real as possible. That's why this isn't a movie. It really truly is a documentary, I think. Well, and I think the uh, I I think it is effective for uh the generations of people that don't watch black and white movies i i think that it is a window in for people who don't have silent films on blu-ray like some of us might who are possibly here in this conversation right now maybe some of us do have maybe silent more films than on one. Yeah, we've got some silent films on Blu-ray for some asinine reason. So you get that good sound of the yeah, good sound. The yeah, music you, is good. Exactly. You have to get that crisp noise to it. Uh, but yeah, so like there are there are people like myself and Katie who just like that old shit and uh, need something, not necessarily a gimmick, but they need a window in. Uh, to to be able to see themselves in that kind of time and place. Man, the bad teeth in this movie. The big book of British smiles is all I could think. They did not they did not whiten any teeth on purpose or anything like that. Or either. if they did, they put like two inches of dog shit on them after they whitened them. Oh, like, yeah. it, was, so bad. it was rough. It was British teeth and German ears just all across this movie. <laughs> I think it's the thing about it is that the, this is such an well none we don't know any of these men's names even the men who are actually speaking like we never get introduced to you know so and so is telling this story it's just voices even with that this feels so personal and intimate and there's at least one story where um oh yeah and this was a total i had this moment call back to full metal jacket because one of the man one of the men tells a story uh Sheldon hit this man he knocked off his left arm he knocked off his left leg his left arm hanging on his cheek and he's calling out for nanny. His bleeding eyes hanging on pulsing. So I shot him. I had to. 
I had to shoot him. He'd have died in any case, and it put him out of his misery. But that hurt me. You know, it's an old man, so you're just like, oh, sir. So it really, doing that really impacts how, even though this is 100 years ago, and a lot of us are able to kind of distance ourselves from history, I think the use of all of these technologies and this blending allows it to very viscerally hit you and hit anyone, not just those of us who grew up watching black and white movies. Right. Because I think there's, there, and I don't want to beat this point to death. And I certainly appreciate Liam's perspective on this. And I get what you're saying about enjoying black and white film and thinking of that era in black and white. But I think, again, there's the difference between the artistry behind it and the reason why it was black and white. Once you're past the era where everything was black and white because it had to be and it was a limitation, I think that allows more room to say, okay, what would have been made in color? But this isn't just colorization to sell more copies. Again, there's a separate issue to me that this is, no, this is trying to show you the world that these men who are talking experienced from the full color perspective that they would have seen it in in real life. So I, I think that's kind of a third tier and a separate thing, which you can agree with or not, but I think that's what they're trying to do. Well, and a lot of times it was more of a, a limitation, uh, not of the technology, but of the budget. Sure. Um, because, I mean, like the... the but not in 1914 like, through 19. That was just straight. They couldn't do color, right? They could. No. Um, oh, really? They had, to, they had to do it in post. Like the... Uh, oh. uh, from the from the Earth to the Moon, they would go back and they would like hand paint every frame. Well, when you got Georges Melier working on a, an art film, that's different than what they were doing no, at that's, the front. That's, that's perfectly true. But like it's, you know, the 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 technology was uh, they still made movies in color is my point it's just it they cost did. the time and labor that people just didn't have the budgets to do okay so let's call uh, it the practical reality then like right. it, it's like arguing about when was the machine gun invented and it's like well you know the maxim gun was around for a long time but like when was it used effectively and really the late right. 1800s wars and then more famously World War One is the first time where it was like mass produced and economically feasible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I take your point there. But, but as, as far as a documentary goes, uh, one question that I had is I noticed kind of like you did, Katie, a lot of things that put me in mind of other war movies. Um, like you, you got sort of like the quick and dirty uh training montage that's that put me in mind of some scenes in full metal jacket or some other movies that uh we might have seen um and there were all of these little moments that made me think of other war movies and the way it was constructed um this is a documentary that's being made in 2018 of footage that's compiled of footage from the first world war that is then uh has a soundtrack of interviews that were done 50 years after that uh and then you take all of that and you compile it into something resembling a narrative how much do you think this punches up the effectiveness of other war movies like, Oh, this reminds me of that war movie. That war movie must've really gotten that right. Or do you think that the existence of other war movies after world war one and in the whole history of war cinema 
impacted how they put this together and structured that narrative. I think it's a, it's definitely a blend. I think that there are, and I, I think it's because there are points specifically like that story about that man being forced to mercy kill his comrade. Like those are things that resonate with people. And so we are going to see those depicted in both, um, cinema and art in general and real life and those are the really poignant moments when there are no good choices that a film is going to focus on regardless and so i think there's probably a little bit of both and i think one of the ways that you can really tell about that especially in this film is because they don't have any footage of in the trenches because those cameras were like giant things that you would have to set up and do all this work and you are hand cranking you are there's nothing automatically running that footage through you are literally turning the wheel to make the film go through the camera so you can't get into the german trenches running across no man's land and so we don't get any of that footage and the film definitely i don't say it suffers from it because jackson does something to fill it in but it definitely changes the impact because we don't see that. The only kind of dead we see are the aftermath. We don't generally see people actually being shot and dying like we do in a war film. So I would guess that he was, um, I wouldn't be surprised if he took the opportunity when he found those moments that are like, oh, this is really reminiscent of, you know, these classic war films or these classic war tropes maybe. And was like, that'll punch it up because he was so limited and not being able to show like, the true cost and nitty grittiness of being in the trenches for sure. Yeah. And, and yet nothing I can point out specifically made me think that meaning that if you consider them starting with, I think 600 hours of video, sorry, 600 hours of audio and a hundred hours of video and chopping that down until they had a hundred hours of audio and like seven or eight hours of video and then figuring out. And the other thing you learn from the making of it is that Jackson was able to specifically focus on unused footage because that footage was overexposed or underexposed or too jumpy or whatever. And by fixing all of that in amazing ways, they show you the process and something that you could barely see before now is like full color, full sound, you know, fully everything. And you're like, holy crap, this is incredible. And you can sometimes see where they were more successful or less successful or like where it was uh, like you, you're watching a certain section and you're like, man, that footage must've been completely jacked because like, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Know? And they show you some of the original footage. So what's amazing is the juxtaposition yeah, especially when they do the frame rate stuff. That f The frame rate is the thing that makes it all work, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a combination of things, but the frame rate's huge, and, and they do a really good job of showing you what... So to explain briefly, again, this is covered in the making of it, but uh, these cameras were hand-cranked, so it wasn't about they consistently shot at a lower or higher frame rate. It's... Um, that it was inconsistent and it ranged yeah, it's whatever the guy's doing 12 to 18 frames per second. And so to adjust it, they had to do that process kind of manually and they show you the difference between one frame too slow, one frame too fast, and then just right. And your eye can see it. Um, but yeah. anyways, getting, getting back to Liam's question, I think that while inevitably in a late fifties, early sixties director, obviously the films he grew up 
with and war films he's seen are going to influence his decisions just as much as they would influence anybody else making a film. I think that this film must have developed the ideas for how to create the narrative structure of this film happened very organically. I don't think they had this storyboarded. They had to, this was an editing process of taking this gigantic pile of information cutting it down to something that was more palatable and then creating something of a story there with no protagonist other than the British army, I guess. But again, all the battle scenes are compiled from different battles. They're not, they're not showing, they talk about the Somme a little bit because the statistics of that battle are staggering, but they're not showing you any particular battle. And they Um, never really call that one specifically. They, they refer to it as the big push. Mm-hmm. And that was, I actually had to, because I, I don't have the, the research off the top of my head. Uh, I had to go in and like, I Googled like, what do they talk about when they talk about the big push? And they're like, oh, that's the battle of the Psalm. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah makes sense. The yeah, battle so- of the mud is what that was. And that was something that, and here's the other thing to think about when we're thinking about the construction of this story is that Peter Jackson is from New Zealand and the New Zealand and Australian forces that were involved in World War One, um, they did part take place or did um, participate in the Battle of the Somme, but they were also in uh, Gallipoli. And yeah, they, yeah, they have a very brutal um, experience in general. And so I think that also kind of informed jackson's decision with how because like there are some bits in this that are just gutting to hear machine gun bullets came at us like hailstones i didn't realize that the swish swish were bullets i look around and people are dropping all around you i mean they just faded away you know on either side of you and i thought oh, what the shooting at me for by the way everyone who did research for this episode provided some amazing stuff that we don't have the time to get into all of it here but we will put it in our surplus ordinance for anybody who wants to read more about this i'm telling you the research that our collaborators uh did was fascinating um but mike focused his research on the colonial troops and all this essentially all the non-white troops the british had that the british i loved seeing those clips in there Mm -hmm. but but it's just it's just barely right. Yeah. And same with 1917. Yeah. You see like one Sikh soldier here and there. If you look at American footage, you'll see an African American unit or some mixed in here and there. Um, but I think, you know, New Zealanders, maybe sort of some are white, some are um, Maori, et cetera. They're, they're mixed. I think there were so over 4 million non-white European troops from all over the British colonies in this, and not to mention the French colonies in North Africa and West Africa. And the inherent sort of prejudice and racism of the time is interesting to read about. Um, and like Mike tells us, the British command sort of had a reluctance of letting non like for example non-whites didn't fight in the boer wars and one of those one of the reasons for that is that they thought that if they trained and had you know essentially black and brown militias subjects british subjects from outside of great britain that it would entice them to insurrection or rebellion against the british control in their own countries so they were afraid of that and then they also had a very prejudicial system both the british and the french had of dividing 
uh, these tribes, uh, you know, whether they were from African countries, whether they were Indian, but they would divide them up into warlike and non-warlike. And they made decisions about where to place them in units based on this prejudice that they had that was based on, I don't know, rumor or just what people generally thought about those people or whatever. So yeah, it's it's really interesting. And Dan did the appropriate air quotes there, guys. You can't see the video, but he totally right. did the finger quotes I'm, around those people. I'm doing I'm doing <laughs> the air quotes. And so I think he sums it up really well at the end of his research where he says fighting and dying for people not your own in a country not your own is a hell of a thing and not only did they do it with you know commendations and i'm sure there are all kinds of stories of medals and bravery etc same with african-american soldiers that fought for the u.s before you know, before slavery was ended, before segregation was over. Um, but this did lead to independence movements in some of these countries, like in India in the following decades. So what they were afraid of did end up happening, which is that being able to fight in war like this gave a lot of these cultures sort of something to stand on and be like, look, we know how to fight. We can do this. And it's time that we get rid of these colonial oppressors, you know? So that's a really interesting context. It's not talked about that much. I'm really glad that Mike researched that. Oh yeah. 100%. And it's like the, the, this was from the era or perhaps not long after the era where like British officers were like riding Indian people around in wicker baskets and like having these guys carry them places because they didn't want to walk and I don't know didn't have a horse that could go indoors I like it's so fucked up yeah beyond beyond yeah. there's there aren't words like I can't even fathom uh uh a, a system where it's like you you'll carry me on your back let's do that uh, but he, even more so, you, you and your friends will come all the way across the world and fight in a like in an impossible situation in these battles sometimes where the casualty rates were upwards of 50 percent for for what? For your pay? Like, that's it. You know what I mean? For <laughs> like, nothing. That's, I don't even know so how they motivated those people. That was one of the things that I really wanted to delve into was the movie opens up with the the grainy archival footage. And you have the all of these recordings of these veterans who I'm sure if I was telling a story about myself from 50 years, I'm not 50 years old yet, but when I'm 50 years old or when I'm 60 years old and I decide to tell the story about how I was when I was 15, it's not going to be the same way that I was going to tell the story when I was 15. Uh, so, like, there's a little bit of, like, uh, probably inherent revisionism in that. But it really struck me that all of them were just like, well, we're there do the job. Just doing the job. It was, like, very stiff, stiff upper, upper lip. Stiff upper lip. Uh, and it's it was strange to me that all of them were just like, oh, I didn't regret it. It made me a man. Like, And I'm just like, this is a mindset that so doesn't translate to today uh for me personally i don't know how you guys felt about that but it was like there was no dissent like different voices all saying basically the same thing over and over again why you see this footage of these guys marching pretty much towards the screen and then fading slowly to white um making them harder and harder to see as it goes uh interesting shot with an interesting 
uh, progression of dialogue there from these interviews. Um, how did that guy strike you right off the bat? Because it put me sort of like in a strange place as soon as the movie started. So interesting story. Well, to me anyway, and hopefully to you too. Um, so my, my husband did his master's in England and he spent a lot of time in the pubs talking to old older dudes just because in England and pubs people talk to each other and these were mostly Korean war vets and he when he heard that exact comment he was like that was what he said he was like mm, stiff upper lip sounds like the British Korean war vets I knew and like so to me it came across as very much both a British thing of this is this is how we deal we bear up under pressure and the the thoughts of the era where a hundred years ago there was especially in that society there was not nearly the individualistic thought processes that we think of today it was like oh well we got to do our bit for england and that's kind of what came across to me when i'm listening to the guy that was one of the things that i i actually had a thought while i was watching it when one of the one of the interviewees said well it's not like today uh a man just did what he was told he wasn't supposed to think for himself and i yeah. i would i ooh, i wanted to hear more from that guy i wanted to hear from him because first of all willing to bet that that was probably recorded during the vietnam era if i were it would have been before. you said like it would have been you said like 50s or 60s it was in the uh, 60s it was in yeah, the 60s, it was, so. I think it was like 50 years after they would have people so interviews. So that would have been, so it could have been like 68 even. And I didn't think Britain was quite as involved in the Vietnam War as America. No, but you, but not necessarily Britain being involved in the Vietnam War, but they definitely had the counterculture over there uh, during the 60s. Um, you probably had some uh, uh the the war protests in america were probably making the news over there if i were guessing um but the it, i just wanted to hear more from him as far as like is he saying that ruefully of people thinking for themselves today or is he thinking of it like well that wasn't even like we didn't know we were allowed to like when i yell at my children and i send them to their rooms and they tell me, no, they're not going to their rooms. And I'm like, that's not an option. When I got sent to my room <laughs> as a child, I went to my room. There was nothing else to do. But it's just like, Oh, the, today's they, youth. They just don't fucking go. It's, uh, I, I wanted to hear more from him, long story short. Yeah, I mean, there, there are several things going on at the same time here. I think we're dealing with older British men, which again, you have the whole stiff upper lip thing, etc. I mean, everything they talk about sounds like cordial and casual almost even when they're talking about like shooting someone in the head and it's like kind of intense because it's shocking because you can't anticipate what they're about to say based on their tone unless they break up and start crying which again was really rare you hear it a couple of times but i think in this older generation of men through probably korea and most of vietnam they came home and didn't talk about it and there's a lot of the research talks about this as well this is why I love World War One history. This was such a perfect storm of sort of two long eras coming together. And it was the previous 
hundreds and hundreds of years of warfare and kind of the idea that people had in their minds about war, which especially in Britain was a small voluntary force. They didn't have conscription and you went to China or Burma or somewhere else and fought in this war and some people died, some people came back, but it was not a world war, right? This was the first time that the world was at war and people thought that like the world was going to end. And so I think the level of responsibility that the average citizen felt in terms of participating and doing what they could was way higher. We see a similar thing in World War II. Again, the reason they're called World War I and World War II is because they're so directly related and one essentially caused the other if you look into the history. Um, but yeah, I just I, – and then – there's a bigger point here too about the fact that I feel like a hundred years is a pretty good mark on when the average person, unless you're a historian, you start to sort of lose track of those generations and lose track of those people. You can't relate to it as directly. And we're getting close to that point on World War II, where most people who lived through World War II as adults or very young or, you know, like seven, 10, that kind of age where they can still remember are dying off. They're almost all gone. You're um, losing that firsthand testimony. Right. And World War right. One, we've already lost it, which is what makes these BBC recordings from old men in the 60s super valuable is because you're hearing firsthand testimony and it's making everything come to life and making these experiences much more real. Another thing that's easy to forget is that class, we talked about this in the last episode, class has such a big factor on recruiting. Um, when you're trying to get people to sign up, well, look at what, what what's their life like right now. There's no TV. They're probably too poor to afford radio. They're like farmers. They work in shops in town. These people, a lot of them are going to like find a girl in town to marry and have kids with, and that's going to be their life, right? Like it's just very cookie cutter and i'm not trying to take away from anyone's individualism or personality but it's like that's what the society was and the lower classes were going to suffer from that the most so all of a sudden this thing comes along and all of your perspective and stories from older men about previous wars are about adventure and seeing the world and when i pull you aside away from your mom and we have like a smoke on the back porch together i'm telling you about this whorehouse we visited in saipan or whatever right there's all this colorful stories that you're telling people and this is the classic like why young people find adventure in the military but if you rewind the tapes a hundred years the number of poorer people who didn't have a lot of other prospects not, nobody in their family went you know they they finished school early they didn't go to college etc they have very limited prospects and so the idea of war especially in 1914 before any of the atrociousness started and all this new technology was just decimating populations and britain essentially continued to the BEF was like 250,000 people at the beginning of the war. They lost almost everybody um, and then came back. The survivors essentially retrained the new army. But Britain had to amass a large land army or a bigger land army in World War I. They didn't have one before. They were a naval power. Same with the U.S. The U.S. came in at the end of the war, and they also at the time did not have a huge standing army. So... There's just so many different things here to talk about and why things went the way they were. But I think it's exceptional that, and, and maybe Liam, these are the veterans who were more willing to come out and speak up because they volunteered to talk to the BBC and tell their story. There, for every every voice we're hearing, there's got to be another 20 people who were like, yeah, 
no thanks. Like, I don't want to tell those stories. I don't want to. Yeah, but the number of times that they called it, oh, it was like a game. I was like, Jesus Christ. It didn't affect me very much because I wasn't sufficiently open to the ways of the world. I was only a kid, like other blokes there. It was more like a great big game to be enjoyed, apart from the actual shilling and all that sort of thing. But that's the perspective of a of a 16-year-old, right? You saw how easy it was for them to say I was 15, I was 16. They told yeah. me I had to Go say I was 17. Go outside and have a birthday is what that one of them said. was hilarious, by the I way. I know. That, I thought that was It was too. tragic, but it was just like, oh, that's too young. You better go outside and have a birthday. Yeah, rec- recruiters have been the slime of the earth since uh, way before World War One. So this is a common story. They will tell you whatever the you Marine. need to hear. I'm just saying... Hey, I'm glad you said it because I know I'd probably be pilloried for saying it. Recruiters are not well liked, generally speaking. They're known to, at, at the very least, white lie their way into making you think that what you're signing up for is actually what you want to do or that, oh man, you really want this job, but if you don't sign up next week, I don't know, they might not take you for like six, you might become ineligible and like, oh, that's bullshit. It's it's also like selling cars. I used to sell cars and be like, man, I can't promise you this thing's going to be here tomorrow. You better buy it now. Like- and another thing that's a factor here is that these big world wars that happened in Europe were the first time in a while, at least, that European cities were getting bombed and destroyed. We saw a lot more of it in World War II. But again, it's kind of like the U.S. problem, so to speak, of getting involved in wars. They're always somewhere else across the rest of the world. We're never being invaded. We're never being bombed. People don't have any kind of memory about what it's like to be in a town full of rubble where everything's been destroyed unless you were in the European theater or that's where you grew up. And so... Yeah, like the, the, at the beginning of World War One, nobody really knew what to expect. Two years in, you see the difference between 1914 and 1916, where all of a sudden we'll we'll get into weapons and stuff a little bit because I think it's really important for this particular war. But the ramping up of technology that was happening changed the whole game, and everyone that went in in the first two years either they weren't in the war anymore because they were dead or casualties, or they learned real quick how to change from cloth caps to steel helmets all of a sudden and the the power that um you know organized machine gun suppressive fire can have on a trench assault at the beginning we're talking about germans having over twelve thousand machine guns i think and the french and english together had like a few hundred so just no comparison when you were on the assault you were going to get decimated so anyways I've gone on too long, but it's it's really difficult, not just because it's 100 years ago, but because this particular time period is such a specific time capsule. It's different from World War II. World War II, vets, World War II kids getting into the war had all these veterans that had been in the First World War and in between conflicts, and these new tactics have been developed. None of these people going in in 1914 are in that position. So it's a very strange time to be alive, really. Yeah, it's like nobody had any idea what they were walking into. And this war was one of those that it, it even, oh, well, I don't know if it's more than, but this, this war dramatically changed society across the world to the point where like it, it was discussed. Cause for those of us who are in America, for those listening who are an American audience outside of us, the World War One is referred to as the Great War, if you don't know that. And at the time, it was looked at as it took an entire generation of of men. And it, it can very much directly be related back to uh, the push for women's rights, women voting, women's involvement in the workforce. And they touch on that a little bit at the end. Women's involvement about- in the war. 
right? All the in work the war, that they yes. did manufacturing and Yep, and they and Jackson chose not to talk about that. He does have some footage that he shows in the special features that are pretty interesting. Um, but you know, these men came back and they were all of a sudden like, Oh, well, you're not the only workforce anymore. These women have had to take care of things and so I think especially listening to those interviews later on, now we're getting these men's perspective on the war with that history. Because all of the all of these interviews are taking place after World War II. And more than one of them in the interviews talks about, I didn't see, when I came home, I didn't see the point in war. And, you know, there may be conflicts, but I I, I just can't countenance it anymore. And talking about how, the German soldiers, they didn't necessarily feel that the average soldier was their enemy. They felt like the machine gunners. Those were their enemies because those men fought to the death. And all too often they talked about having these experiences of getting into the trenches and it's some young German boy who's cowering in fear and putting his hands up and they're like, all right, whatever, you're fine. Go, go. I'm not going to kill you. And it, it's such a representation of how, like you said, Dan, like they are just pulling people. Just let's just get as many people into this force as possible. And so we saw it from the perspective of the average Joe, as opposed to in previous wars where being a soldier was like a job. That's what you did with your life until you were retired. Especially like, for the British volunteer expeditionary force. Like the, right. the, you, you, you go soldiering and that's your thing. Like being well, in the Navy. That was, that's one of the things that uh, Hamilton of all things brought up was the idea that, you know, you wanted there to be a war and to be involved in it because it was the only way to improve your station in society. Like if you go to war and you get some medals or you get a promotion or you get mentioned in dispatches or some other kind of commendation that gives you some kind of leg up in society to, uh, to, to be something other than a farmer. Yeah. And it's also steady pay and three squares a day, which depending on the conditions of the economy in your country at the time, you may not. Lots of jam apparently. Lots of rum. Holy crap. I feel like someone said at one point that they basically had unlimited rum, like 10 pints a day Mm -hmm. per man. I was like, where do you even store that? You can't possibly do your job if you're that drunk. Like they're not drinking all of it. It's impossible. And historically, when they go over the top, when you go over the top, they gave them as much rum as they could drink. mm, And I just thought so makes sense. So you drink as much rum as you can in that moment. And if you make it to the point where the booze actually hits you and you are drunk. You've probably survived that battle. Good yeah, good job. That's pretty crazy. But yeah, a little bit of liquid courage certainly uh, yeah. could help. Historically, the uh, the British Army was not very well fed, but the British Navy, uh, by comparison, was insanely well fed and mm-hmm. always had booze and all had all the best stuff. I wonder if that shifted in World War I with the emphasis on the land war. I'm not, I have no way of knowing that, but. uh, Right. One would imagine that however the government is shifting their finances to be able to all of a sudden to deal with the attrition, you lose most of a 250,000 man army, you know, recruiting, retraining, new equipment. That's, that's a lot of money. So, and of course, famously Britain was getting more and more in debt with the U S because what the U S did in these years before the U S came into the war in 1917 
was loan out a ton of money to the Entente. And we we have not done any even brief sort of background history on World War One. So maybe we should do that real quick just for anyone who isn't familiar. Of course, you can look this up and there's a million podcasts. Oh, that, that chap got shot. Right? I, I can tell you all about how that began. <laughs> so we're... That, was, that was a Serbian problem. That, that chap got shot over there. Serbian problems. So I've read quite a bit about World War One, and I I think it was pretty accepted among the political elites that this was this was only a matter of time. Germany had been planning for the invasion of Belgium and France for two decades at least, and had multiple plans in progress. And it wasn't until um, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, who was in the royal line for the Austro-Hungarian Empire, by uh, the Black Hand. Who was 17, by the way, the guy who killed him was 17, and it was all an accident. The story of Franz Ferdinand's assassination is utterly fascinating. And the saddest thing is, he wasn't a bad dude. He probably would have been a much better ruler and made changes, but we never got to find out. And so when that happened, Austria cracked down on Serbia, because Serbia was one of their, like, uh, vassal nations. And then it drew in Germany. And according to treaties, uh, when they attacked Belgium, Belgium had a treaty with France and France was obligated to defend Belgium. And France pushed the issue with England, who also had a treaty with France for uh, mutual defense. And then everybody got dragged into it. And it just became a chain reaction of treaties. It became a quagmire and it really took, I think the assassination of Franz Ferdinand happened in the summer, I think July, if I can remember correctly, mm-hmm. but the war didn't really. June 28th, 1914. June 20th. Okay. So almost July. So the war didn't really kick off until August because, and for those of you who really want to know more about World War One, who don't know, the guns of August is considered the standard of World War One history. Very dry. Barbara Touchman? But very. Yes, very, very dry, but very interesting. So, and I don't get the impression that most of these men knew anything about that. Nor did they care, like, yeah. They they had no understanding of the greater political environments. If you weren't reading the newspapers and following politics, you weren't going to know that there was conflict again between France and Germany because in the previous war between France and Germany. Uh, uh, interesting thing from a... a course that i took in college on the ottoman empire was uh the what doesn't get spoken about very often as far as like reason why the ottomans got involved was that they owed an insane amount of money to england and they figured that if england lost they wouldn't have to pay it back makes sense because the the ottoman uh, uh economy was historically driven entirely by war like you'd go conquer mm-hmm. a thing and that would just sort of like f- feed the the empire uh, but they had accrued so much debt to england that when england got involved they were like well we're fighting whoever england's fighting <laughs> whoever yep. is fighting against england so we ain't paying back that debt screw it no yeah, but that's a good point, though, about the juxtaposition of kind of what the average soldier knew and followed versus what the politicians were doing, what the country was doing. Obviously, there's always a divide between those two factors, but yes. just like anything else, World War One is similar to other conflicts. It's just everything is cranked up to 11. I think it's just all yeah. the factors are that much stronger. Um, and 
one of those things that we cannot help but talk about at least a little bit here is the weapons technology and what had been developed either recently or was being developed for this war. So while I normally run out of time to even talk about weapons, I want to go through just a little bit and talk about some of the details of those new weapon systems that were the men were not only learning how to operate for the first time, but the tactics were still developing, especially on this mass scale. I mean, you're talking about over the course of the war, you had, by the way, these sides are called the Entente. You can think of them as the allies, but they weren't called the allies. So the Entente is Great Britain and France and the US and their allies. And the central powers are mostly Germany and Austria-Hungary and the Turks. And there's a couple of other small Eastern European nations in there, but those are the main powers. So when we when we mention them, that's what we're talking about. There's almost 16 million Entente forces. This is for the whole of the war uh, on the Western Front. And 13,250,000 Central forces. So that's, a, that's over 420 miles of Western Front. So you're talking about 70,000 or so total troops per mile of the front over the course of the war. So not on all both at, sides, on both sides, right? not all at okay. one time. Um, but again, something that um, I'll mention a little bit later in uh, our contributor, Micah, who made a lot of great, he's an infantry officer and a historian. He made a lot of great points about why trench warfare, which we can get to later. Um, but one of the things he mentions is that flanking maneuvers, which were a common tactic in small unit tactics to sort of, you know, the front of the enemy is always the most dangerous part. As soon as you can find a way to get around them and get to the side or behind them, you're going to have an advantage. They're going to scatter, etc. Well, when you have a line of thousands of men, and when you look to the left, there's men to the horizon. When you look to the right, there's men to the horizon. There is no flanking maneuver because you can't get around them. You just have these two gigantic groups of people facing each other. And this, at this scale, this was the first time that this ever happened. And not all of these are brand new technologies, but the way they were used or the scale or the new type was certainly new. So artillery was never used in this heavy artillery um, on this scale had never been used. So being able to concentrate like 15 rounds per minute uh, into an area and the statistics on artillery use in World War One are so detailed that it's crazy. If you ask the question, what was the most heavily shelled area or part of the front or even battle in World War One, you're inevitably going to have to refine your question and be like, well, what do you mean? Are you talking about shells per square meter? Are you talking about total shells throughout the battles? Are you talking about shells per minute? Like there's all these different statistics um, on just actual volume. The Somme, for example, which was a really brutal battle where over the four or five months that it lasted, 400,000 British troops um, lost their lives. And that might be, I think that's actually total casualties on both sides. So that started with a one week's worth of artillery shelling. Now I'm talking continuous artillery shelling for like five to seven days. Jesus. You can go back to listen to footage, but when you talk about shell shock and PTSD and people not being able to think, that's of course because of the effect of something like this. We don't we don't have any reference for that. Even most of us who served in the military don't have a reference for that. We just don't know what it's like to be under artillery fire for that long. Um, so the amount of ammo they were expending was just crazy. If you've ever heard of the French 75, the cocktail, that is named from this era after the French 
um, artillery piece. It was 75 millimeters from 1897 that a lot of them were using. That's where that comes from. But so that was something that, you know, people had never experienced before. Repeating rifles were becoming a new thing. So if you follow the progression of rifles, you have the old muzzle loaders that are one at a time. You know, but whether you're able to reload that weapon quickly is a huge part of how effective you can be with rifle fire. What you had here with the Lee Enfield rifle, which was of British use, it had the highest magazine count. A, an infantry soldier could put 10 rounds in that magazine, and I think either plus one in the chamber or that includes it. But the point being is they could fire at a rate that had never really been accomplished before because if you have a bolt action rifle and you're pulling the bolt back and forward every time, like your modern hunting rifles use that same basic technology, you can only get so many rounds off per minute. Um, the record here, which is kind of crazy, but I'll just read the record as opposed to other statistics because it's blows your mind to think about it. If you've ever gone to the rifle range. So, one of the tests of marksmanship that British soldiers had to do was called the Mad Minute. And that's when you had a minute to fire your Lee Enfield at um, a target that was 24 inches at 300 yards. So, not like super far, but this isn't, you know, super close that's either. Three and football fields. That's a right. decent. And probably iron sights here. These guys aren't, we're not talking about a sniper rifle with a scope. One of the sergeant instructors. Uh, in 1914 how many times do you think and again i'm talking about um, you still have to pull the bolt back and then push it forward manually every time the difference is you don't have to chamber around yourself there's a magazine inside the rifle so the next round is spring loaded to go into the chamber next how many rounds do you think the record is in one minute and and hitting this target a 24 inch target at 300 yards every single hit 30 I was going to come in around there, so I'll go maybe 40. I mean, 30 is is around every two seconds. A, a well-placed, aimed round that hits its target. The record's 38, which is <laughs> insane. Like, when you think about it, I don't know how that guy did that. I mean, I was trying to think practice. of a number that was, like, stupid. 40 is pretty stupid, but so is yeah. 38. To watch that right? would just be insane. That's faster than around every two seconds. I mean, that is some rapid fire for an old bolt action rifle that was in it was so accurate and so reliable that it was in service until like 56 or well never mind the fact that it only held 10 rounds right was he switching guns or was no, he reloading so, the thing so you're reloading and they did have so did they pause it <laughs> <laughs> no but you did have so Again, this is the difference between an external magazine and an internal magazine. If you look at like the M16, for example, or it, it wasn't when they were shooting, but something representing the M16 in like Full Metal Jacket, that's a classic external magazine. There's a button, you push it, the right. whole magazine comes out, you put in a fresh one, chamber around, boom, you're ready to go for however many rounds are in there. An internal magazine is still better than none because it's inside the gun, but you can preload a certain number of rounds, in this case, 10, and then even though you may have a non-semi-automatic operation where you have to pull the bolt back and push it forward every time, you don't have to reload the weapon. Now, when it comes time to reload, the normal reloading of that would be one round at a time. You shove 10 rounds one at a right. time in there until you oh reach capacity. God. They did have, um, I forget what it's called, but we use the similar thing with the M16. They have a very cheap and flimsy strip of metal that you could attach 10 rounds to 
and then essentially move them as a single piece and shove them all down into the gun at once. So that helped them reload a lot faster. But the big thing here is that even without the advantage of machine guns, the British were able to lay down a lot of accurate fire when you multiply these extra rounds and this ability times however many soldiers they had, where the Germans were surprised that this wasn't machine gun fire. Because again, times 20, 100 men, however many it is. So yeah, interesting development on long rifles. Of course, you had um, aircraft and tanks, which came into this war at the beginning and are just so different from what we have nowadays. Uh, first of all, communications affected all of this vastly. The main way to communicate on the battlefield during this time was telegraph, which is a wire telegraph. This is why you see a lot of people in this era crawling around with a spool of telegraph wire laying out wire that had been blown up in the previous engagement so they could communicate with command. Because just like any other military structure, you're going to have a command post with the general or colonel in charge of this battle who's looking at maps and moving things around and seeing their casualty rates and looking at the big picture. Well, units have to be able to communicate. Otherwise, they can't tell them, oh, we see the Germans moving over to the west or, oh, we just lost half our forces, right? And Micah very intelligently points this out in his in his work that um, that was one of the main reasons why smaller squad tactics didn't work because even if you could get a special force trained hundred person platoon to go sneak off and go flank the enemy, right? Okay, great. You've now flanked the enemy. You can kill, I guess, however many people as your unit is big, but you know there's a you're vastly outnumbered, but you don't have a radio. You don't have any way to tell your command how that assault went or what you think they need to do next or where anything is. Same with aircraft. Aircraft are helping spot artillery and stuff, but for the most part, they don't have radios to communicate that back. So they're using flags or hand signals, but communication is really hindering a lot of this movement and tactics. Yeah, and like if you think about the aircraft aspect of that, that, that was such a revolutionary part of this war is, is aircraft. But this is what I thought of when I watched the most recent World or Wonder Woman movie, to be clear, because the her boyfriend in that is a World War One pilot. World War One planes had a stick, some dials to tell you where you were, and a brake line. It wasn't even a pedal, it was a brake line for to stop the the wheels when you, when you landed. So you could adjust your rudders or whatever. I'm I'm not good with airplanes, but they were so integral and so revolutionary for gaining information and stuff. But like you said, Dan, if you can't communicate with them in the, in the moment, you have to wait until they land and you have to hope to God that they make it down safely because not even from enemy fire, just from the fact that airplanes were essentially made of canvas and balsa wood at this point. Yeah, very easy <laughs> to light had, on fire. And you still had to get out and like to start the plane someone is pulling down that propeller and you're pulling out a switch. Like it, it, it was so rudimentary beyond what we even think of today. Like, cause so often people think of world war two planes, which were far, far more advanced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that the period of the war, 1914, 1919 seems to just kind of match the same period in aircraft development, which of course wars accelerate a lot of this development because governments spend money like there's no tomorrow during a war, especially, or, or certainly on the military. Um, and so you go from like a lot of other technologies in World War One, you go from the beginning where it was primitive and not well thought out and like tanks were breaking all the time. Aircraft are like, oh, yeah. 
I can drop a hand grenade literally out the side of the cockpit. <laughs> Like a lot of and hope of, for the best. I mean, how much are you going to do? Or literally, you have pilots shooting at each other with their handguns, like just hanging out the side of their aircraft. You can imagine how easy that is to hit another pilot. And then two years later, I think I can't remember the exact date. You have developments like you know fixed mounted machine guns that have a trigger. Uh, a, it has an official name I can't remember right now, but you know th- there was a famous device invented to allow the timing of for you to not shoot through your own propeller, but you could be lined up through the propeller, which essentially means where you're aiming the plane is where your machine gun fire is going to go. So things like that, that eventually led to dogfighting tactics and techniques and all those things. But at the beginning, they just weren't there. It hadn't been done. So this is all happening in real time. Machine guns, again, sort of things changed as new rounds were developed and gumming up or or stoppages were less frequent. But again, the Germans had the advantage here. They started off with way more machine guns. The uh, water cooling is a technology that came out, um, which was around before this, but being able to water cool a machine gun essentially meant that as long as you had rounds and you had fresh water, you could fire um, continuously without stopping. And believe it or not, this is a problem. And also with- make a cup of tea. And yep, I love that story. That was pretty great. It's it's weird to us to think of a machine because when we think about our car engine, that's basically designed to constantly go and no problem as long as you have gas and do maintenance, of course, but there's a cooling system in there. So a machine gun that's just air cooled is going to have a limit to how many rounds it can fire. Eventually what you'll see is the barrel will like glow red hot. And in some modern weapons, like we train with the uh, 240 Golf, Um, And a lot of M60s and kind of machine guns that we saw in the outpost are designed so that the barrel can be removed and swapped out with a fresh barrel. And so the machine gun team, which is usually two men, um, the actual operator and a spotter um, slash, you know, ammo person, the assistant machine gunner is what he's called, will bring new ammo and is ready to swap out that barrel as soon as it needs swapping out. And just with two, basically, in modern weapons, you can provide a constant stream of fire with few interruptions. Of course, you overlap a few machine guns and you're good. But yeah, so all new technology. We talked about tanks a little bit. I, I Please go look up like the, uh, let's see, the French FT-17, which is like a little mini tank, but it was the first one with a rotating turret. Um the crazy looking uh, 1917, the Mark IV um, tank, the German tank, which there's only one surviving, I don't even know if it's working, but one surviving tank. It's in a museum in Australia. It's called Mephisto. That's like the name of the, the personalized name of the tank. But it's the only, certainly the only German tank that survived the war. And this thing, and they could fit like 16, 17 people in there, noisy and hot as hell and just uncomfortable as all hell. So, Were yeah. there even enough, was there even enough shit to do in a World War One tank that you need to put 16 people in it? Or were you, is it supposed to be like a Trojan horse where you like get through and then they all pop out? It's more about transport. It's a little, yeah, it's definitely about safe transport. They also, they had a, at least like four or six machine guns pointed in different places. So you could man a bunch of different machine gun turrets inside the tank. But the other thing that tanks did pretty efficiently is they could carve a path, um, not only across trenches, but through barbed wire. Because 
initially the thought was because when you look at and they show you one of them in the film you see this field of barbed wire that is oh like, it looks like hell and where they say like a rabbit couldn't have gotten through and it's and you look and it at was it, all rusty and be in addition to just being there and i was thinking about it like i was like dude if i was a rifleman and i just walked up to this giant sea of barbed wire like i'd be like okay i guess i'm going home or are we gonna set up like what do you do and one of the things that they thought at the time was that artillery bombardments, one of the reasons for these continuous artillery bombardments was going to be that it would just blow up and totally destroy the barbed wire. And especially because at first they were using anti-personnel shrapnel shells that essentially were designed to indirect fire over and then explode in the air and just spray shrapnel down. That, that was very cool to see in, in film. That, that was, was awesome. really it was. cool. Yeah, I really love that clip, but that did absolutely nothing. You can imagine firing a giant shotgun at a pile of barbed wire. Nothing's going to happen, essentially. So a lot of this barbed wire they thought was going to be removed by the time they got up to it. Um, but one of the things that the tanks did well is kind of squish the barbed wire and roll over it and you know destroy some of the posts and stuff, which would then allow infantry to follow. From every war since tanks have been involved, tanks and infantry have to kind of work closely together. I mean, they are, there are just tank battles in more modern wars, but especially at this time, they're really slow and you need infantry to kind of keep the enemy away from being able to, you know, throw a grenade at it or I mean, a grenade wouldn't hurt it, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's a, it's and maintenance of, it. Now, like they weren't exactly my... smooth run, smoothly oiled machines. Those things were really, really rudimentary and required right. lots of maintenance and work and effort to keep them going. Mm -hmm. Forgive my ignorance here. This is kind of a tongue in cheek question, but like the British didn't invent the idea of tanks, right? Because this movie that... kind of makes it look like they invented them. So this is one I did not run into, unless Katie knows. I think it was the French, but I'm not 100% sure. It was the that group of forces. I believe that the British... It was because I believe they were introduced. And God, I'm going to get just reamed out in the group if I get this wrong. So my apologies. Um, I'm remembering this from four years later after doing the research. Um, my memory is that that was something that was developed specifically and was eventually introduced on the song. And did not go well because mud and tanks are not besties, especially those early models. And so they had to do a lot of revisions to make them work well. But I believe it was something that was developed on um, the British and the French side specifically for World War One. Because they were like hiding them under tarps and they were like, oh, that's top secret stuff. And I'm like, did the British invent that? Or is it like something that, that kind of like everybody was trying to invent like the atom bomb? Right. Yeah, but it may like have been. somebody Little got it both. first. Or... I wouldn't be surprised if it was a collaboration. But Katie is right that the Battle of the Somme was the first introduction, at least in any large number, of tanks into a battle against the Germans. Um, right, because they figured it would really solve things because of the mud, and it turned out the mud was not the tank's friends. I, I think the funniest part is that the name tank has stuck this whole time when it was a code word for water tank, essentially, because they weren't telling their soldiers what it was. Right. And I'm like, that's funny. We never changed never the updated it. name of the word because in other countries, they're not called tanks. They're usually called some version of armored vehicle or armored tractor, armored we truck. We call it the warthog. Right. Uh, <laughs> even the word panzer in German comes from the French uh, panzer 
which is the word belly is in there in Latin. And it's because that was the name of armor that like knights and old school armor people used to wear. The panzer, right. I think, is the portion that covered your belly. So that's where the German word panzer comes from. The, the general word for, for the tank. Of course, there was a panzer model. Anyways, um, there's a few honorable mentions in here as well. The flamethrower, the, the Mills bomb, which is basically a hand. It's a fragmentation hand grenade. It's the one with the classic pineapple sort of look to it. I um, love the dudes that were just shooting hand grenades from the from the rifles. Those are rifle grenades. Those are different. Yeah. Well, yeah, but that like I I'd, I'd never actually seen that. Mm-hmm. They look that so like, concerned. They're like, oh, yeah, God. they're just like, is this gonna? gonna... Well, and the one guy <laughs> knocks his helmet off with it. I was like, ooh, right? that they're, just, that they're like cringing hurt. away from it. And I could see uh, when the the second one in that moment happens, you can see the other guys who are watching the camera like, uh, is it going to hit the it, camera? Is it, it going to hit us? I don't okay. know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not dead. I think as the guy being interviewed talks about, I don't think they were a favorite. They were kind of inaccurate. And so, yeah. Um, Anyways, and and then lastly, one thing we should talk about quickly is gas and the use of chemical weapons. I was really surprised that that wasn't talked about more. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because the people who could talk about it weren't able to talk about it anymore. Maybe and I, I think don't it's, know. I I bet they probably didn't have a lot of footage. I think that's the other thing, like we had talked about before, where this film is kind of limited by the footage that was available, like the gas gas was one of the worst things and was its usage in world war one was eventually what led to pretty much the banning of gas mm-hmm. in pre, in subsequent wars and why we consider chemical warfare to be one of the worst things to do unless you're a protester in america or unless you know you live in syria yeah. And very famously, Hitler did not allow the use of gas with his forces because he was gassed as an infantryman in World War One. But here's the funny part. <laughs> oh, oh boy. By the funny part, I mean like fascinating and kind of terrible and tragic all at once. Uh are you guys familiar with uh Fritz Haber? No. No. Fritz Haber was a uh German scientist in World War One. Uh, he was Jewish and he kind of rose up through the ranks because of his work in, uh, in, uh, dealing with like chlorine and, and creating ammonia and stuff like that, which essentially he, he single-handedly solved world hunger by and large, uh, with his research prior to world war one, when world war one happened, he got really into gas and this is like a quick and dirty version. Um, but he was very, very heavily into, uh, involved with the development of the like chlorine gas. But what was interesting was that he was really proud of his contributions and everything. And he's like, I'm doing the right thing for my country and all this. And like his wife killed herself because like she was so horrified by what he did like just absolute terrible terrible like there's there's no real good part of this story uh but the worst sort of o henry twist is that the gas was called zyklone oh i was just going to ask you if this was related to zyklone b but i wasn't sure zyklone a was what he had come up with and it had 
a um it had a a a certain odor that was intentionally put into it as a warning system so that if you smelled it you knew what was happening same way gas in your home has a mm-hmm. additive exactly. to it it's that makes natural added, gas it's an added scent mm-hmm. the cyclone b the only difference is they took the smell out. It was odorless. Interesting. So he contributed oh. to the gas. That so, so he can. So Which Cyclone B is the gas that was used to to kill, to perpetrate the Holocaust against the Jews for the, like, probably two people listening who don't know that. Yeah, it's, it's so he and it was, I think, after he died that, like, they were going through his old files and everything and they found the recipe. They took out the additive and they produced that in mass and called it Cyclone B, uh, which is tragic for myriad reasons, uh, but also just one of the, like, one of the instances where this film sort of, like, mentions a thing, and I'm like, that's a much bigger story! And then it just sort of, like, glosses right past it. And I, and... It's one of the ways in which, like, I think this film fails, but I also get why it's failing that particular litmus test. Um, But then there's some stuff that, like, uh, uh, sorry, this is getting off topic a little bit as far as the the weapons are concerned. But there was another instance uh, in the in the movie where. Uh, they mentioned something and I'm like, that's a whole thing. Uh, but they just like sort of like touched on it and then walked off was uh, the young lady presenting him with a. Oh, yeah. With a white feather. With a white feather. Um, this is a strictly. A pretty much strictly British thing is the 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 white feather is a symbol of cowardice, um, but it's it's really punched up in the novel and the subsequent film adaptations of the story, the four feathers, um, which I hope we get a chance to, to review at some point uh, is interesting tale. uh, But it's all focused on that idea of like presenting somebody with a white feather as a symbol of their cowardice into like this public shaming of people who hadn't not even hadn't enlisted yet. Cause he had no way of knowing, but like, People who just weren't in uniform, but yeah, were young an and able-bodied men who were not on the front. There are there are a lot of stories about guys who were like home from the front, who like were getting shit and like white feathers from all these people when they were just like having a sandwich or like riding the bus, and they're like, um, "Yeah, I'll give this to my guys when I'm back from leave." Okay, thank you. We don't have enough of these here. I want to respond to Liam and then I had one more comment on gas that I had written down because I wanted to make sure we talk about it because I've never heard it discussed. Um, I was going to say it's ironic that Liam is criticizing Peter Jackson for what he sort of glossed over in his film because I was like, but that's exactly what we're doing because I have like five pages of notes and I know we're not going to get to all of it. And people are going to be like, I spent all this time researching. You didn't get to this. I'm like, it's just the nature of trying to do something concise. But anyways, um, to go back to gas for just a second, Again, this is part of Micah's research, but he described the differences in the gases. And gas in this war was used 
Um, I think when the Germans were trying to get away from the fact that the previous treaties um, made poisonous shells, right? Like artillery that you could fire and then let out gas. They made that illegal. They made, so they had very specific wording and what kind of gas weapons were illegal. But the Germans figured out that by just taking a canister and opening up the top and then waiting for the wind to pick it up, did not fall under any of those treaties. So that's one of the first things that they did. Of course, the danger there being that, first of all, you have to get close enough to the enemy line to be able to put that anywhere that's going to be a factor. And two, like Liam mentioned, if the wind shifts, all that gas can come back to you, which sure, you can prepare your troops with gas masks, but that's still not the desired effect. Um, But interestingly, there were four main different types of gas. I'm not going to get into all the names of the chemicals, but generally speaking, white so these are crosses. I'm assuming the crosses are marked on the artillery shells or on the canisters or whatever device you're using. Uh, and there's white, yellow, green, and blue. White cross was tear gas, which is a similar version of the mild irritant that we use today, which internationally is still considered a war crime to use, even though police departments are using them all the time. Nonetheless, they're non-fatal. You can generally breathe plenty of it in. It's going to make your, you know, your eyes water and you're not going to... It's going to suck, but it's not going to kill you. Yeah, it's going to suck, but you're going to recover relatively quickly. I've been through it. Part of Marine Corps training is to go into a gas chamber and they use CS gas and they force you to take your gas mask off. So I've experienced some of that. It's not quite as strong as the version that the police use, but it's certainly not going to kill you um yellow cross was mustard gas which although it has a really infamous reputation i learned here that um it only had a two or three percent fatality rate but what it did do is basically anyone who breathed it in was going to be knocked out of the fight for 10 days so it created massive casualties which we haven't defined that word on this show yet but a casualty is not necessarily a fatality a casualty is a combination of anyone that gets taken out of the battle so sickness injury or death so killed in action are included in casualty figures but this gas was really effective at knocking you out of the fight not necessarily killing you the green cross was the one to really look out for that was the chlorine related gases Um, of all the gas deaths 85 percent of them were from chlorine gas so Yeah, you knew that that was some nasty stuff. And then interestingly, the Blue Cross was actually um, a type of irritant powder that was usually used in conjunction to other gases because it bypassed the filter system on the masks. And so if you had your mask on and you got hit with these Blue Cross um, shells, the powder would get in where the where the gas wouldn't. And it was an irritant kind of like tear gas just to cause you to, you know, and it would often cause these soldiers to pull their gas masks off so they can breathe. And that's when you get hit with either the chlorine or the mustard gas that's also being used. So, um, and the other downside to this one is that the powder didn't spread with the wind the way gas does. So it had a very limited area of impact. It would impact the soldiers wherever it hit, but that was kind of it. So anyways, for anybody who's nerdy into that kind of stuff, I thought that was a really interesting description of the different gases that were used. No, that's Um, really fascinating. How like it's, it makes it worse. Like it, it makes it so much worse to like, uh, to to realize the amount of thought that they. Put oh right, into yeah. The, the tactics people. of how you use gas and how you supply it and how you fire it out involves all this detail. You have to think about how it's going to affect people, so you can't pretend like you don't know what it's going to do. It's a terrible thing. 
Yeah, it's like punching somebody in the stomach so they double over and they like lean into your uppercut. It's like right. that kind of gamesmanship that's just. And once the cat's out of the bag and one side's using it, everyone's going to have to use it because you can't lose the the tactical advantage of. Because there's not, not a moral person. high ground in war. Well, nope. there there have there have been barriers drawn, but often, and especially in World War One, those barriers were eventually crossed, such as the shelling of cities full of civilians was not really a thing that happened as commonly before World War One. But anyways, before I talk forever, Katie, let's get back to your point. So the thing I thought could bring this back to the film is about the, so the end of the film I thought was really important for Jackson to include because the end doesn't just focus on like the end of the war. It isn't just like, and we won, hurrah. It's, it, it in fact talks about how at the end of the war, like there wasn't all this celebrating among the British soldiers. There was almost like a silence when Armistice Day was announced because they were just so emotionally wrung out they had nothing left to celebrate and then when they went home like we think of things like um the response to the vets from vietnam for instance and how very disrespectfully they were treated and how bad that was but the men in this documentary talk about experiencing that for themselves that they came home and there were signs in the windows saying you know we are not hiring world war one Ex-soldiers, I think is how they put it. Service members need not apply, I think is what the story Yes. Yep. They Uh, treated them like they were Irish. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that it's so great that Jackson included that because it's not something we think about when we think about World War I or World War II. And I mean, in America, America, we don't think about World War I, to be clear. And we think about World War II and how World War II vets are like, heroes regardless of what you did you're a hero if you were in world war ii and like i guess my understanding of it was kind of the same for world war one and i would be willing to bet that the doughboys which is what they called american service members in world war one um were probably given that respect but it's strange to hear you know the outcome for these men who came back to no jobs to being in some ways vilified for their role in an incredibly difficult and traumatic war. And for those who've looked into how they were treated afterwards, like shell shock, which we now know as PTSD was a a huge thing for world war one. And it was kind of the first war we'd really seen that because this was the first war of artillery. And it was very interesting to see Jackson at least include a little bit of that because it's such for other nations, it's such a big part of the story of these veterans is they not only went through this really traumatic war, it was a war that left scars, both physical and emotional, you know, like, and there wasn't now, like if you are an amputee, you can get a prosthetic, you can have plastic surgery, you can have all of these different medical interventions done. Then there was nothing. Like if you'd had half your face blown off, if you were lucky, you got a mask to put over it. And you just had to hope that either people were okay with your mask or that you had a close enough community that would accept you without it. And we don't get a lot of it. And I would have liked more, honestly, but it's because I think it would have, if they had included more of that, it would have done more to really humanize these soldiers 
because they went through so much and not just during the war, but also afterwards. And it feels like that's really the point of the movie is to talk about how these were human men going through some of the most difficult challenges. We were a race apart from the civilians and you could speak to your comrades and they understood, but the civilians, it was just a waste of time. However nice and sympathetic they were, attempts of well-meaning people to sympathize reflected the fact that they didn't really understand at all. I really uh, agree that I think we needed more of that. I, I, For me, anyway, um, not like I, I need everything to be a parade of human suffering, but the I was waiting for... And I think that's what that's what threw me about that opening section is that like they were all talking about it in a pretty upbeat and chipper way. And I understand they were talking about how they went into it, but I never really got the full the the brunt of the horror of the war, because this is like notably one of the most atrocious things that human beings have ever done to each other was it just regular folks in world war one and they they kept that stiff upper lip stuff like all the way through the end which again this was most likely being made for a british audience and maybe that speaks to them and maybe that maybe maybe they can read between the lines in a way that i can't I, um I, yeah i think there's a lot of cultural translation that's and cultural and generational translation that not that we're missing we've talked about it and i know that you realize it but it doesn't speak to me it's not like it, it that doesn't grab me the way that it might grab somebody that is more fluent in that sure and and i think that we got the best we were going to get out of these World War One vets who were in their 70s and 80s in the 60s talking about it. I'm surprised they're opening up as much as they do, actually. Um, and I think... Yeah, that- it was definitely not acceptable to do that at that time. You were, it, it wasn't that they didn't want to share a lot of it. it. It was that culturally it wasn't necessarily acceptable to do so. Well, like nobody was, wanted to listen. That was that one of the things that I got from what they were talking about at the end was that uh it was almost like it so a way in which it was different from uh from the impression that i get of folks coming home from vietnam uh is that in vietnam there was like a moral outrage on the part of the protesters that they were like you did bad things over there um, but from, from the way these guys were talking, it almost just sounded like they came back too gross. Like they were covered with lice. They had absolutely no manners. They didn't know how to function in polite society any longer. And they talk about that, that like, you know, when they were in the, in the trenches, uh, they weren't polishing their buttons right. And they, you know, they got pretty rough and they told dirty jokes to each other. Like we saw in the outpost, like you know, you, that's, I think that's something that is still common and would be, uh, would still translate to soldiers today, but it's, it, it, that was what seemed to be the objection. Like, we don't want to hire them 
because they're gross and we don't want gross people working in our shop. It, it's almost as if they were met with indifference as opposed to the hatred that we saw during the post-Vietnam era. And th- this is a good point to talk about in general when we talk about war films is sort of the reception that veterans are getting in different wars. But in terms of the the film and the documentary, I, I could think of kind of three things related to what you're talking about. One Jackson was never able to really show us the more atrocious parts of the dead bodies and the combat. And that's because there's no footage of it. The combat, the more extreme parts of the combat that we've read about, like seven days straight shelling at the Somme, etc. They were just too dangerous for a cameraman to be running around with a camera. Um, as well as who knows how many cultural factors impacted how much they were filming dead bodies. You certainly see some of it here. But if you go listen to, um, I'll put this in the show notes as well, because I think this is really important for anybody who's trying to learn about World War One. But if you listen to Dan Carlin's um, series on World War One, it is twice as graphic as this film is. He gets into personal stories of the details of the atrocious violence and gore that these people were dealing with on a regular basis. Two, we have the nature of this generation that again is already kind of taciturn and sort of do your job and stiff upper lip. They're British. Not to mention this was the winning side. Imagine how the Germans veterans must have felt when everything was crumbling and they're paying reparations and everything else is just probably felt like starting world war two. I mean, sure, but that much worse compared to the British. Um, And then, yeah, I think the quote I got from one of the veterans in their own words was, you know, a lot of civilians meant well, and they tried to sympathize with us. But the bottom line is they couldn't possibly understand what we had been through. We were like a race apart from civilians. Like they felt like aliens. They felt like a totally different part of society that only other veterans could relate to. And this is probably what led to a lot of veterans clubs being started and veterans only going to that one pub and drinking with their friends. And who knows if they were talking to each other about their experiences, but by and large, they were not talking to their families and friends about them. And I think anybody who's had family in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, has had a lot of similar experiences where maybe you can force someone to really sit down and tell you these stories before they go. But for the most part, they don't like talking about it, especially to people who, from their perspective, could never understand. No, like my grandfather got buried with a ton of medals and didn't talk about how he got like any of them so yeah it's it's just it's not and especially for older generations it's just not accepted to talk about you know emotional issues and i think you go home and drink about it exactly i think there are probably those rare exceptions who did pass down their stories and stuff and we get to hear those stories Particularly, um, I know that particularly in Australia and New Zealand, they have a much uh, richer record of those histories for whatever reason. And it, it is very receptive of the time. And I don't I don't even honestly know if that's changed that much. If we as we talk to more, you know, veterans from current wars like Iraq and the Gulf War and stuff like that, where you know, therapy in general is an accepted thing these days. A hundred years ago, therapy was, you know, Freud hadn't even really begun his work. So now it's much more acceptable to talk about your emotional experiences and how these things weighed on you. Then it wasn't even, you know, what are you talking about? The psyche, 
that wasn't even a word then so it's in it'll be interesting as we go through these war movies to see how that changes and how especially when we talk about documentaries like this how these men perceive and eventually women as well and non-binary folks how they perceive how they're treated when they get back from these conflicts where i believe it's true that like if you're not there to a certain extent you can only empathize you can't really understand what they went through and i don't think that necessarily i mean this is this is a guess but i would not expect that the doughboys coming back to america had much of a better time of it than than the the british soldiers did no. uh, because like not only was it terrible and if you weren't there you can't understand it um but isn't this around the time that like the vfws really started to pop up i think so i think world war one veterans started a lot of that and and then like world war one was so bad that it kind of spawned the roaring 20s like where it was considered poor manners to go to a party and not get drunk and make a scene like it, it was but like people were just drunk all the time. Well, look um, at Hemingway. Hemingway yeah. is one of the most well-known World War One veterans, and he wasn't part of the Doughboys. He was a volunteer ambulance driver in Spain during World War. Dashiell Hammett was also Dashiell Hammett, who wrote the Maltese Falcon and the Glass Key and the Thin Man. He was also an ambulance driver in World War One. I. I don't know what it is with the ambulance drivers being writers. Well, in America, if you wanted to, if you were an American and you wanted to go and do anything in World War One, that's kind of what you did. If you wanted to participate before uh, Wilson, you know, finally gave the approval to get involved. Oh, interesting. Um, you went and you became like an ambulance driver or you served. There's a specific phrase for what they were called. You could join the British service or the French service and you were some kind of like specialty. Or something. Right. Run off to join the French Foreign Legion. Yeah, you could go do that. But a big part of it was they would volunteer and be ambulance drivers or or serve in that kind of capacity where they were like background folks helping, but they were still seeing, you know, you're still driving into the trenches to pick men up in pieces, as it were, and sometimes literally. So we could probably keep going for another hour. And I knew this was going to happen. This is like <laughs> a least. really interesting topic. And there's a lot to say. Um. I wanted to make sure that one point that Peter Jackson brought up in the making of and that other people chimed in on, but sort of he described the point of him making this film as he wanted people to be affected and then to go into their families and their family history and find out who was affected by World War One in my life. Who do I know? Who can I talk to? And so I want to ask that question of ourselves and of the audience to try and talk to people who knew people who were involved in World War One and your family and get some personal stories out of it. But I think that's an important thing to think about how, how, because Peter Jackson, you know, explains how his grandfather being injured in the war is what caused him to meet his grandmother who was a nurse. And then that was how his father was born and how he was born. So like, had it not been for the war, he probably wouldn't even exist. So it's a bit existential, but, um, I don't, you guys may need time or you may need to answer a different time. I, uh, oh, no, I can tell okay, you both ahead, my Kim. grandparents, both my grandparents on my dad's side. Um, My grandma 
was 1919 and my grandpa was 1917 and both of them are Hunga full-blooded Hungarians and my grandma was born on the ship over here right. and my grandpa was born in Hungary and um both of them both of their families were fleeing that conflict so it, it, it's something that you know, a lot of times we think of World War Two as the one that really creates a diaspora, but World War One also caused a lot of people to flee these nations and come to somewhere else because they were, not, if not persecuted, they knew that things were going to go very badly. For sure. Liam, what about you? Do you know if there's anybody in your Well, the, the part of my family that I know the most about is the Irish side. Um, which I think one of the biggest impacts of World War One on Ireland as a whole was the Easter Rising of 1916, uh, which is among a lot of other things, uh, was fueled in part by the conscription of the Irish into the British Army. Um, that that seemed to to have a a good part to do with it. My um. My mother's grandfather was gassed with mustard gas in the war and made it home and lived for several years afterwards, but it caused him serious health issues. And he eventually died um, after his daughter was born. And I think my grandmother's mother died in childbirth. So she ended up being raised by her grandparents. She didn't have her parents around. And, and part of that was my grandfather being gassed. So yeah, I, I already knew there was a little bit of a connection in my family. But yeah, I'd encourage everybody to look into their families and, and find out what kind of connection do you have to these sort of mysterious people that lived 100 years ago or were in this conflict 100 years ago, but that when you really stop and look at their lives, they weren't all that different from us. I really, really like this film. It's now one of my favorite documentaries, um, for sure. I think it suffers from the fact that the making of portion of it is so integral and i think so important to really understanding the motivations of the director that i wish it was just tacked onto the end of the film so that when you rent it on amazon it's easier to watch as opposed to a separate thing i think it's really important to watch um in conjunction with the film and so i guess that affects the second point too of whether i think that the filmmaker accomplished what he wanted to accomplish i think largely yes i agree that some of the human element that it would have been nice to get more of towards the end was missing. But again, we're talking about archival audio and footage that you're going through. So you don't exactly get to ask someone a new question or ask them a follow-up question. It's a, it's a different type of filmmaking and something that I know Jackson really enjoys. Like he's gone on record as saying he doesn't really enjoy the shooting process itself. That's really hard work, but he loves being in the editing room and piecing it all together. So this is a combination of a bunch of different interests of his. And I think it really shows, and again, the effort and love and care that he put into it. So I love, I really love this movie. It's a weird movie to love, but for me, it captures the essence of what it was like to be in World War One for what a lot of us think of as like, and this isn't accurate and not universal, but... For me, when I think of World War One, I, I think of the Western Front and I think of British soldiers in trenches, you know, the Blackadder, if you will, for those who enjoy British comedy. And I think this really captures what it was like to be in that place at that time in the voices of the men who lived it. I think Jackson is the perfect choice to do this because 
he cares so much. And I agree, Dan. I, I think really they should have included this. And for me, like I said, the first time I saw it in theaters, this was just at the end. Like this, that little info bit was before the credits. Like the movie ends and then Jackson's thing plays and then they roll the credits. And I, as I'm watching it, he said in the beginning, he's like, this is just something you're seeing if you're in theaters. And afterwards I was like, why didn't you include this at the movie? Like this is... If you enjoyed the movie, you will also enjoy knowing this stuff about it and knowing like all of the background and history of how it came to be and the hard work that went into it. And it really made you appreciate the because this was put together by a very small team of people. I, I would be willing to bet there's maybe 30 people who really worked on the film, which is completely unusual in, in film. But they all cared and they all wanted to give these long dead people voices to allow us to both understand our own history because world war one, even if your country didn't participate in it or your ancestors didn't participate in it affects everybody and it affects the world today. And I think that is a big part of what Jackson was pushing for. And that's why both I like it. And I think it succeeds in what he was going for because he wasn't trying to give us something like 1917 where it's this, coherent narrative he is trying to put us in the shoes of people who experienced it and it does such a great job and i was so impressed and it's one of those things that like whenever someone tells me they're interested in world war one i'm like oh you have to watch this documentary you have to it'll, it'll totally change your perspective on the war because you can connect with it because it feels like modern day footage but you know that all of the faces that you are seeing, there's a really good chance that at least 50% of the men's faces that you are seeing, if not more, died a few minutes after you saw that footage. And that has so much of an impact. And we've talked before about anti-war and war, pro-war films and all that stuff, propaganda. And I think, I don't think Jackson was really looking for that when he made this. But I think if anything can be an anti-war film, this is something that really aims to give you a, an, a, an accurate perspective on what it's like to go through war, which so many documentaries and war movies are not necessarily interested in giving you. So that's why I think this is such an integral film and why I was like, you guys, we got to watch this one in the first five. We got to. It, it will give us such a great discussion point. Yeah, it was a really good choice. I agree with like, everything to a certain extent that you guys are saying about it um i i want to i want to say i didn't love it here comes the butt but i also ended up watching it multiple times in the past 36 hours um and i think part of that is because i didn't want to not love it i i i wanted this to be something that that really that really hit me and drove things home about the war that I felt like I didn't understand before. Um, but a, kind of apart from how you poop on the front lines, like it didn't bring a whole lot of new stuff to the table for me. Um, I think it was an interesting, it does give an interesting perspective to maybe people who don't think about world war one that much or if it seems so distant that you have to see something uh in color and high definition to relate to it 
Um, but it, it never quite got there for me. And I feel like the fact that so much is missing from the movie by not seeing the making of documentary, uh, makes the movie more of the point than the people that the movie is about. Um, I think that this is an excellent thing to watch, but it, it, it has to come in, uh, with other things that it doesn't function as a standalone documentary. Um, it doesn't give you any new understanding of the war. Really? It gives you really interesting perspectives, uh, throughout, but the perspectives are never personalized enough that you get to see like how one person or even multiple people all thought that they changed through the war. Um, it doesn't really give you much of the logistics as far as like, who was where and what did they experience? Um, I feel like if Peter Jackson had done this in collaboration with Ken Burns, we would have had a much better all around product, but it's, it's something that just didn't quite get there for me. And I'm still not entirely sure. Uh, and that's what I'm, what I mean. I'm not sure why he made it. It's in part because the, um, because the story is the movie. And, and how it was made and not so much what the final product was um, makes me sort of, I feel like Peter Jackson isn't self-aware enough to realize that all the work he's doing can't be the story. And that's what I have to say. I can definitely see that. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm yeah. I mean, I, I see what you're saying. I, I'm going to disagree with that, but I'm not going to get into it because we need to close this episode. And I think I made my feelings about the process and what he did clear sort of earlier in the episode. So I'll leave it at that. Um, but in closing, we just had a couple of housekeeping things. First of all, we were talking about veteran interviews and how relevant they are. And I've been working on a couple of veteran interviews. Uh, one's a good friend of mine. Another uh, is was in the infantry in the Iraq war. So we'll have a couple of interesting perspectives coming up. Katie's also going to interview a veteran friend of hers. So we do have those in the lineup. This is the first episode we've really recorded after getting some feedback from people. So aside from the people who thought our episodes are too long and are not going to be satisfied with the length of this one, um, we really appreciate all your critiques and everyone's been really nice and friendly about it and really appreciating what we're doing. And we're really trying to do the best thing that we can for you guys. So thank you very much for the back and forth uh, and for the participation again. Don't forget to like and subscribe, leave us a rating on iTunes, um, like Danger Close on Facebook, as well as the Danger Close uh, podcast discussion group, which you can join on Facebook. Um, and that will give you a chance to interact more with our further posts and talk to other people about these films. And, you know, we have a way to turn in recommendations, etc. Um I wanted to thank the contributors that did the historical research for this episode specifically, which was really, really outstanding. I had a lot more that we couldn't get to, but Dennis Myers, Mike Andrews, uh, Richard Stevens, Kyle Pocock, and Micah Niedorfler. Um, thank you very much, you guys, for the extensive work that you did in turning in research papers for this. It was really helpful, and I hope we did some justice to the work that you guys put in. What are we doing next? So next up, we have 1954's The Cane Mutiny, uh, starring Humphrey Bogart and Jose Ferrer, Fred McMurray, and it is available to you uh, to be uh, rented online. 
Yeah, it's a World War II naval courtroom drama. Uh, so it's uh, kind of unique. It's based on the novel by Herman Wook. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right, but I might not be. So tune in next time as we discuss uh, Humphrey Bogart's passion for strawberries. <laughs> cool. All right. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. We appreciate you listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, she hasn't been kissed in 40 years. Inky dinky, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Our topic in Armitage broke the spell of 40 years. Inky dinky, parlez-vous.